0: Keep fighting to bring peace to humans and robots. This is the Guileless Gamer Podcast, I'm Stefan, and this is part one of Mega Bluster, our very, very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. Capcom was officially founded on June 11th, 1983 as a division of the IRM Corporation. It took its name from a previous IRM subsidiary, a Japan Capsule Computers Company, Capsule Computers, Capcom, slam them together, you get it. Uh, and it produced its first video game, Volgus, in 1984. Volgus was a too-little, too-late, Xevious-like shooter that failed to find traction outside of its home market. But it helped establish the foothold for Capcom in the coin op space, and also furthered the career of designer Yoshiki Akamoto. Uh, Akamoto's not going to figure directly into the story we're about to tell, but his successes at Capcom would generate a ripple effect so large as to virtually capsize the small but sturdy ship upon which we're going to be sailing for however long this journey's going to take. Vulgus begat 1942, 1942 begat Commando, Commando begat Ghosts and Goblins and ghosts and goblins beget a wave of global suffering the likes of which the game industry has not seen since. Also in 1983, Nintendo launched the family computer its foray into cartridge-based home video games, designed originally to run an as-close-as-possible-in-1983 arcade-accurate version of the company's mega-hit Donkey Kong. Over the next four years, the family computer would come to dominate the Japanese home console market and spawn a moderately successful disk-based add-on, the Famicom Disk System, that nevertheless allowed several franchises to incubate. It would also, after a redesign and an aggressive marketing push, establish a beachhead in the United States, thanks in no small part to the wild and revolutionary success of Super Mario Bros., Between December 1985 and December 1987, Nintendo became the de facto face of home video games, and its hardware became a destination for any publisher looking to tap into Western consumers' unending appetite for novel entertainments. Capcom published seven games for the Nintendo family computer before December 1987. As with many publishers grappling with the rapid ascent of Nintendo's console, it took several attempts to come to grips, not just with the hardware itself, but also with the discipline of designing games for the home instead of the arcade. All of Capcom's previous efforts, which included Trojan, Ghosts and Goblins, 1942, and Commando among them, had been ports of arcade hits or home computer oddities. Mega Man, or Rockman as it was called in Japan, was the first Capcom game designed and developed specifically for home consoles. Mega Man's team represented a conservative investment for Capcom and was staffed primarily with young talent at the start of their careers. Its leader, though, was a senior and distinguished member of the team, planner Akira Kitamura, who more than anyone else can claim to be the father of the franchise. Hot off the successes of Section Z and Trojan, Kitamura created the game's concept and initial character designs, including the early art and original sprites for Mega Man himself. Influenced by Osamu Tezuka's Astro Boy and various tokusatsu series popular on Japanese television, including, and please forgive the pronunciation, uh, Kassurn, Timeboken, Kikider, and Common Rider, Kitamura laid the foundation atop which this franchise would be built. Now, in his time, Kitamura was a visionary, but his career in game development would be cut short for reasons that remain unclear even today. He retired from the industry in the early 1990s, following the failure of his own studio, Takeru, about which we'll speak more in future episodes. He is gone from Mega Man after two games. Others that he left behind would remain to carry the torch he lit. Most prominent among those torchbearers is Keiji Inafune, who served as an artist on the original Mega Man. Only 22 at the time he joined Capcom, Inafune would prove the franchise's foremost shepherd for more than two decades, and contributed designs and pixel art for several characters. Working alongside Inafune was Yasuaki Kishimoto, another young designer who continued to work on Capcom's flagship franchises, Resident Evil and Monster Hunter, as recently as 2019. Rounding out the trio of designers was Naoya Tomita, who remained close to both Mega Man and Inafune over the subsequent years. The three men together defined the look and personality of the series. And that look has proven remarkably enduring. Stylistic visual consistency has remained a hallmark of the Mega Man franchise, even to this day. Good work then, good work now. Programmer Nobuyuki Matsushima was responsible for converting the concepts Kitamura, Inafune, Kishimoto, and Tomita designed into a workable game. As the sole programmer on Mega Man, we have him to thank for many of the intelligent technical tricks that stretched the boundaries of how a video game could look and work on the NES. He remains at Capcom as a corporate officer, running the company's R&D management division, the only member of the original team to ascend to and maintain a management role in the company. Composer Manami Matsume, another 22-year-old, was part of Capcom's primarily female sound team, alongside Tamiyokawamoto, Kawamoto, Harumi Fujita, Kumi Yamaga, Junko Tamiya, and later Yokushima Mora. Mega Man was Matsume's first credited role as composer, and she defined an audio language for the character and the world that became instantly recognizable. Music has become one of the franchise's hallmarks in subsequent decades, and Matsume's composition set the standard that others would follow for years to come. Holding the team together was producer Takashi Nishiyama, whose career trajectory would not be defined by Mega Man, but rather by Street Fighter and then the Fatal Fury and King of Fighters series produced by SNK through the 1990s. Ishiyama is a legend of the fighting game genre, and the same year he produced Mega Man, he also directed the original Street Fighter for arcades. Although getting from point A to B in each game is radically different, the two do rhyme structurally, insofar as they pit a single-player-controlled character against a series of foes of similar stature, but differing skill sets in one-on-one combat. Structurally, Mega Man is a game divided into two halves. The first half is about optionality and choice, while the second is a linear gauntlet of challenges. In this way, Mega Man mirrors life. You choose your path to a point, and then the real hard work begins. Mega Man gives the player access to six levels at the outset. Each of these levels poses a roughly equal challenge navigationally, which makes any of them a viable starting The lie of that choice, though, becomes apparent when the player confronts the boss of each stage, at which point previous decisions about level selection order are brought to bear. Bosses possess strengths and weaknesses, and the player's ability to defeat them is significantly affected by the powers with which they enter the battle. Defeat a boss and you gain their power. Use that power against other bosses to win easier victories and blaze a trail through the first half of the game. The bosses themselves are distinctive and charismatic. In fact, all of Mega Man's characters possess a striking amount of personality that transcends their wordless presentation. Eschewing the harsh mechanism of Western portrayals of robots common in 1980s popular culture, Mega Man shows us softer. Rounder, more approachable robots, with big eyes and big personalities. Cutman, Gutsman, Elec Man, Bombman, Fireman, and Iceman, the original six robot masters, are each visually and mechanically distinct enemies that make each stage feel different and each choice feel like it mattered. That's to say nothing of Mega Man himself. Mega Man was as fine and expressive a character as had yet been seen in an 8-bit video game. He looked like his character art, well, his Japanese character art, to a shocking degree, and his antagonist, Dr. Wily, was similarly distinctive. Uh, He has this wonderful eyebrow waggle that gives him an impression of arrogance. It's really a a masterful example of 8-bit character design and how little details can leave a big impression. The individual enemies were immediately recognizable, and featured challenging but comprehensible mechanics that forced players to adapt to a surprisingly varied set of situations although it's most commonly described as an action platform game mega man's really a game of two verbs move and shoot mega man moves horizontally and vertically through spaces and engages with all other characters by either dodging them shooting them. While shoot is Mega Man's most obvious verb, due to both its immediacy and the way that each successive victory amplifies the range of weaponry available to the player, it's actually move that best illustrates the series development across several entries and holds the key to unlocking a lot of its appeal. In Mega Man, vertical movement is bound by gravity, Mega Man can only jump so high and will invariably fall back to solid ground, or into a pit. Situational elements like ladders and elevators can aid Mega Man's movement, but are not a standard part of his arsenal. Horizontal movement is more interesting. Horizontally, Mega Man moves at a fixed speed at all times, except of course when he is standing still. He accelerates immediately to his final cruising speed, and there is strategy and when a player chooses to stop and start, as careful movement helps the player avoid damage, very important in a game that is shockingly stingy with its health drops. It's important to acknowledge that this rigid stop-start movement model was a choice the developers made, not one that was necessarily forced on them. Acceleration ramps existed when Mega Man was developed, Super Mario Bros., the or-text of 2D platforming games, was built in large part on the idea of player-dictated acceleration, as Mario could move from a fixed standing position, accelerate into a steady walk, and then, by pressing and holding a second button, accelerate into a dash. Strategy was built in knowing when to accelerate and when to pull back, as those decisions impacted not only the player's ability to deal with obstacles like gaps and enemies, but also their ability to finish a stage within a fixed time limit. Mega Man, by contrast, removed not only the need to move quickly through levels, but also the ability to. No matter how fast you try to go, Mega Man will only move at one speed, if at all. Why did Kitamura and company design Mega Man this way? Because by removing variable speed and conventional level time limits, they were able to structure each level as a series of deliberate puzzle boxes with discrete challenges to be overcome by a moment-to-moment tactical decisions. Mega Man pushes the player through a series of individual rooms. Once the player has made it through a room, they no longer have to worry about the threats behind them, only those in front of them. There's no persistence outside of the player's room, which means that challenges can be structured deliberately for the player to solve, rather than just to blaze through. An inexperienced player attempting to simply run from left to right in Mega Man will not make it very far, no matter how quickly they can press the fire button. In fact, it is striking how much Mega Man emphasizes moments of stillness. The most effective strategy is often to wait for opportune moments to advance towards the goal while clocking an enemy's pattern and planning a counterattack. In this way, Mega Man plays less like a Super Mario Bros. platformer and more like a modern cover shooter. You move to a safe space, assess your situation, and plot your offense contextually. Sid Meier once described games as a series of interesting choices, and Mega Man embodies that sentiment in every moment of play. This design philosophy is at least as impactful to Mega Man's moment-to-moment gameplay as its rock-paper-scissors-style boss weaknesses and adorable aesthetic. But despite the consideration that went into its design, Mega Man is a rough game to come back to today. Character movement is responsive, but somewhat sloppy. Enemy placement is considered, but not precise. Item drops are infrequent. And the challenge level is high. It's an impressive accomplishment given the state of the NES platform in 1987. But if the series had stopped at this point, we would look back on Mega Man as a kind of fun but flawed NES game, in the way that we look back on games like Star Tropics or Little Samson, or maybe Crystallis. There's something here, but this one game alone would not have been enough to establish Mega Man as a world-beater. The game was not a commercial failure, but it wasn't a hit. Official sales figures are difficult to come by, but my best estimate is that Mega Man shipped no more than a few hundred thousand units worldwide. And even that might be a high estimate. By comparison, Capcom's 1986 NES release of Ghosts and Goblins is estimated to have sold more than one and a half million units. 1986's Commando sold 1.1, and 1985's 1942 sold an even one million if online sales figures can't be trusted. These games had the benefit of being established arcade IPs, but Capcom knew going in that Mega Man wasn't that. In fact, that was the whole point. Mega Man's job was to establish a new console-only foothold for Capcom, and it had failed. Why did Mega Man not hit with the impact its creators had hoped? Well, in the United States, it was hamstrung by an infamously terrible box. In an era when shelf placement was strongly correlated with the game's sales, a great box might not have been enough to make Mega Man a hit, but a bad one might have been enough to sink it, particularly given the relative paucity of media outlets providing critical coverage of new games. As a new IP... Mega Man gave the player no indication of what to expect. There was no way to know what Mega Man was before you played it, and most people just didn't. For a lot of NES games, that would have been it. But Mega Man didn't stop here. The team behind the game loved the character too much to abandon it. And so began a process of refinement that would turn a conceptually interesting, competently executed, moderately frustrating game into a franchise that would stand for a decade as an industry standard bearer. And then things would get weird. Join us, won't you, as we explore the dizzying highs, terrifying lows, and creamy middles of one of the longest-running franchises in video games and see just how weird things get. Thanks for listening to part one of Mega Bluster, our very, very long interrogation of the Mega Man franchise. Music from this episode was sourced from ocremix.org in compliance with that site's content policy. You can find credits and links to the original posts in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or the podcatcher of your choice. If you didn't enjoy this episode, I promise the next one will be better. If you have any feedback you'd like to provide or if I missed something, you can reach out to clay at com. Links to that email address and other social channels are also provided in the show notes. How long will I keep on fighting? How long will my pain last? Maybe only the X-Buster on my hand knows for sure.